Hey, let me get you to stay standing for the reading of God's word today as we come to a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read five verses for today that are going to kind of encompass what we're going to cover in our time together. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Paul writes, and I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's great to have you with us, and uh, for those online gathering today to hear God's word preached and to... uh, Worship from wherever you are. We're glad you're with us. If you have your Bibles, um, you're going to need them just all over the place. We're going to be in Psalm 8. We're going to be in Acts 17. We're going to be in Romans 1, Romans 3, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 2, Romans 1. We're going to be in a lot of places today. Um, So just have your Bibles ready. Uh, We're doing what's, I would say, less common in our church, which is a topical, but I want to be clear, topical but expositional series. Okay? Expositional meaning we're, we're explaining the text. We're not taking a topic and putting our spin on something. We're taking a concept in the scriptures, the central concept of the scriptures, and we're trying to explain them, but from a holistic perspective of all of what the counsel of God word, God's word has to say about it. And so the title of the series is The Gospel Is, right? The Gospel Is, and... We're doing this series because, frankly, we preach the gospel every week in here. And a gospel assumed can become a gospel that's ambiguous, and a gospel that's ambiguous, we don't really know what it means, can become a gospel that's easy to alter and change its meaning and make it mean things that it doesn't mean. And so we're getting back to the foundation, we're getting back to the roots and saying, here's what the gospel is. Now, last week, we talked about the gospel, we called it the gospel in the air, that we needed this 30,000-foot view of the gospel because so often our gospel gets truncated down to being far smaller than it actually is. That if we look at the scriptures, what we have in the gospel is God's plan to reconcile and restore all things to himself through his son. And we talked about that in that sense then, the gospel broadly speaking is the overarching narrative of Scripture, and we captured it in these four words. And listen, these four words aren't just meant to be tags for you to put some notes under. They're supposed to be pegs by which you can remember if you're in a conversation with someone, where do I need to go next? Okay? So what were they? Creation? Tell them about God. Tell them about your God. Fall? Tell them about man's sin. Redemption? Tell them about Jesus. And consummation, tell them it's not going to always be like this, right? We talked about that last week. 
Today, though, we're going to go from the 30,000-foot view, and we're going to zoom in, and we're going to call it, as some do, the gospel on the ground. And that leads us to the title of this message. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. I don't know if you guys remember, in like the mid-2000s, I feel like, is when this was big, but there was a quote that was floating around from St. Francis of Assisi. Do you remember that quote? Turns out he actually didn't say this, almost for sure, but Christians ran with this quote like they thought it was the best thing ever, and here's that quote in case you didn't know it. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And Christians were like, yeah, finally, an understanding of the gospel. Here's the problem. The gospel is words, okay? Let's just be reminded of that again. The gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed. It's got to get out of your mouth. It's an announcement that needs to be heralded about how God puts us sinners back into right relationship with himself through the person and work of Jesus. And all God's people said, thank you, God. This is ours to proclaim. Now, we mean well, but the temptation amongst Christians in every generation is to think it's the way we share the gospel that will make it effective. We'll even keep stats about how many people responded to the gospel because we got some famous guy to preach it or some eloquent speaker to declare it or some methodology to enunciate it that makes it more effective. Look, there's an outbreak of awesomeness that's coming because of how well the gospel is being preached. Loved ones, do not believe the latest method, fad, famous person preaching the gospel. That is not where God has put the power. He's not put it in a man. He's put it in a message. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. <laughs> Foolishness to some but to those who are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1, it is the power of God. So don't be tempted to come back under this like new methodology. Wow, the way they're doing it, look how many decisions for Christ are being made. You know what our job is? We got to get the gospel right. And we got to get it out of our mouths. It's got to get some, somewhere. But it isn't going to be, wow, that person, you just were so good. You were so good at declaring. You know, in some ways, that's what Paul was talking about when he says in our passage, he decided to know nothing. He didn't want it to be confused where everyone was looking at Paul going, dang, Paul, you're so awesome at this. You could be a mega church pastor. You, could have, you got it all going for you, man. You could sign up anywhere. The problem was what other stuff Paul said that probably wouldn't have let him be a mega church pastor. You know what I'm saying? That's why Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where the power is. Jesus Christ and his work, his person and his work. That's what I need to get to you. That's what you Christians need to get to the world. We need to get this message out so that people's faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
So we're going to do this today by another four component outline. Four essential components to the gospel on the ground, okay? And I know that there are people in here that don't know Jesus Christ. First of all, there are people in here that don't know Jesus Christ, and there are people in here that think they know Jesus Christ and are not Christians, okay? I love you. I want you to hear the gospel, and I pray that God would give you eyes to see and give you the gifts of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there are those who are legit Christians in here, saved by Jesus, right, by grace through faith in Christ, that need to understand the message you ought to proclaim to the world. You have breath in your lungs, spend it in proclaiming the gospel to those around you, okay? How many fingers do you guys have on one hand? Okay, you got five, but you got a thumb here, so we're gonna go down to four fingers, okay? And, and this way, this way um, you can never, uh, you'll never forget this. And whenever you need the gospel, wherever someone is, here's where you need to go, okay? Four-finger evangelism, that's what I'm calling this. Four-finger reception of the gospel. For those who don't know the gospel, I pray that you take this into your heart. God, man, Christ response. This is what we must proclaim, and this is what any who would be saved from their sin must receive. God, man, Christ response. Four-finger evangelism, four essential components to the proclamation of the gospel. We're going to work, work through every single one of them. I'm going to give an explanation, and then I'm going to also do this, guys. I'm going to provide some counterfeits. In other words, when you get the God part wrong, here's the twisted gospel counterfeit that comes from it. When you get the man part wrong, here's the twisted gospel counterfeits that come from it. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? When you get the Christ part wrong, he, here's the twisted, I'm getting a few nods. We good? Okay, great. So let's, let's work on this. If you're going to receive the gospel, it starts with knowing about who God is. If you're going to proclaim the gospel, church, it starts about knowing who God is. So when you talk about God, tell him, tell people about his glory. Take him to Psalm 8 and tell him that God established his glory above the heavens. Take him a few verses later and tell him that you've been crowned with glory as image bearers, a little below the angels, but God has bestowed that glory on you. If you're talking to one of your friends that's a Gentile and doesn't have a deep, extensive background to who God is, do what Paul did. The difference that Paul... Um, preached when he preached to Jews versus Gentiles. When he preached to Jews, he could assume so many things that they already knew about God. But when you're preaching to a Gentile, especially in the era we're in right now, there are so many things people don't know about God. So take him, take him to like Acts 17 and take him to when Paul's preaching at the Areopagus and he's talking to this like the philosophical center, right? Of the Gentiles, these Greeks, and, and go there and do what Paul does and Tell them this, tell them, like Acts 17, 24 and 25 says, tell them that there's a God who made the world and everything in it. Tell them that, that he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Don't make your God small, tell him who he is, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the God we proclaim Tell him that this self-existent life in himself, God, who rules heaven and earth, tell him, tell him that he's holy. Tell him that he's set apart in his utter perfections. 
And tell him there is no other. There's no one else on that stage as God. There's no one who compares. He is altogether set apart. And tell him, tell him that he's uncompromisingly loving. You know what people want to know all the time? Why am I on planet Earth? Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why you're here? You're here for Jesus. You're here because the Father's love for the Son so overflowed that God made everything that that is through Jesus and for Jesus. You exist for Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. God's so delighting in his son that out of the overflow of that, all things were created through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. And as the pinnacle of his creation, we are image bearers of God. They need to know that. They need to know that we have a, a vocation that God's given us as worshipers of the most high king and as workers to take what we know about God and to extend it in wise stewardship. Over the, over, the, over the things of this, this world to work in such a way that you would bring God's wisdom into every facet of our lives and in so doing, the world becomes this glorious place. God can tell us who we are and God can tell us that we are meant to worship and we were meant to work for him because it is his to define because he is the creator of all. In fact, Abraham Kuyper has a famous quote. You've probably heard it before, but let me say it again. There is not a square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. It's all his. And as such, to walk out of step with God, if you walk out of step with that vocation that you were meant to worship and you were meant to work for him to exercise God's wise stewardship out of your worship, going out into the world and exercising God's wise stewardship in the things that you do, when you walk out of step with that, that is rebellion against God. God's the creator, you're the creation, you have rebelled against him, and that rightly demands his justice. And herein we have our first two gospel counterfeits that come if we don't get God right. The first one is this, the judgmentless gospel. The judgmentless gospel. Certainly you guys have heard of the judgmentless gospel, right? It's the gospel that elevates love. It's really the phrase, love is love. Uh, no, God is love. Okay, When you elevate love as a concept that overarchingly defines God and strips him of his other attributes, you part God out and it creates a permissive gospel, a gospel of unconditional acceptance of your lifestyle. The good part of that is God accepts you just as you are, which is an amazing thing. The broken part of that is that you think that's how God always wants you to stay. And that's the part that they miss. Certainly God will receive us just as we are, not because of who we are, but because of God's stunning grace in Jesus Christ. But this notion that God will accept you in your lifestyle as an ongoing lifestyle, even if it's in rebellion to him, is part of this judgmentless gospel. And you know what God, people will say this, people will say, well, God sees my heart. To which we need to say yes, and that's the problem. God sees your heart. 
and it's desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. The judgmentless gospel, here's the good news. When we say the gospel is good news, their good news is good news, God's cool with everything as is in your life. But loved ones, it is good news that God deals with sin. It is good news that God is just. It is good news that God in his love protects his own by destroying and eradicating sin. That is good news and it's missing in the judgmentless gospel. See, the judgmentless God is seen as being super loving, but ultimately the judgmentless God is not super loving. Truly, he's not loving at all. Just accepting of all sin and self in one big fell swoop. The judgmentless gospel misses the holiness of God and the glory of God. Here's another one. We're going to call it the quietest gospel. The quietest gospel is this. Good news you can keep your personal belief in God to yourself. You ever know those people? They, um, they have a belief in God. They would tell you they have a relationship with God, but you know what? You just keep it personal. It's just between me and God. I've had it growing up. It was something I picked up from my mom or my dad, and it's just been with me forever. I don't really want to talk about it. I don't want you weighing in on it. I don't want to talk about it with others. And see, the person who's got the quietest gospel has this missing. They're missing the glory of God. They're missing that God's glory is meant to be on display and to spread across the whole world. They're missing the fact that God's not a means to personal comfort and mental health as if that was an end of itself. That it's good to believe in him, but it's more of a me thing. It's more of a self-preservation thing. It's more, this is how I survive, instead of a, wait a minute, Jesus is Lord. He has bearing and say over all my life, and everything is different because of who Jesus is. And it's not meant to be kept to myself. It is meant to be proclaimed to the world because God's glory, not only will he not share it with another, he wants it to cover the earth as water covers the sea. And the glory comes through the proclamation of the great, culminating, glorious display of God's love in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this gospel, because God's glory is at stake, must not be kept to ourselves. And this gospel, because God's holiness is at stake, must not be displayed as this, oh, you know what? God's cool with you just as you are. God's cool with all kinds of religions. They're all leading to the same place. That is a fundamental lie when you understand who God is. And then you got to tell them about man. You got to tell them about man. You got to tell them that man's an image bearer of God for sure. That's where you got to start. You got to get to man's vocation that he worships and he works. But loved ones, if you're going to be effective in sharing the good news, you have to share the backdrop of bad news that makes the good news so glorious. You got to tell them about sin. You got to take them to Romans 3. You, you got, they got to see it. You can take them through Romans 1 through 3. Show them what's there. You, you think you're righteous. The Bible says no one is. 
You think you seek God. The Bible says no one does. The Bible says all have turned aside. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Take him to Romans 1 and show him how we have failed in our God-ordained vocation as image bearers for our lives. Instead of in worshiping and serving the creator God who is to be forever praised, amen, we succumbed ourselves to idolatry and worshiped and served created things instead of the creator. And for that, the wrath of God is being revealed even now against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We are being further and further plummeted into our own destruction because God has given us over to the things that enslave us, the things that we want so badly. And the way we get there is that we suppress the truth about God because the truth about God is known to everyone such that Romans 1 can say, there's not a soul on the planet that is without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. Because God's designed the world in a certain way to display his excellencies, to display his divine nature and his divine power. And the reason your friend, family member, coworker, neighbor, or maybe yourself are struggling with God is not because he doesn't exist, but because you have moral sin in your heart. You have a rampant idolatry in your heart and you suppress the truth about God in your unrighteousness. Or as Jesus would say in John chapter 3, see, we get, we love, um, God so loved the world, right? How many of us know that one, right? Come on, that's on like eight Christian t-shirts in your closet right now. God so loved the world that he gave his, and that's an awesome verse, by the way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we're just like, you just got to choose. You just got to choose. You just got to choose. Come on, choose. Choose God. Keep reading. Jesus says, three verses later, and this is the judgment. The light. Who's the light? Has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's like the constant refrain of an atheist is, I don't believe in God, and I hate him. <laughs> there is a robust emotionalism behind a lot of atheism. There is a suppression of truth about God that is plain to all in our unrighteousness so we can walk in our own ways unto our own darkness and our own destruction. That is man left to himself. What's amazing about the gospel is that in spite of that, God has come to us, John 1, but his own didn't what? Receive him. God has come to us we won't come to him. That's not the gospel that's often preached. The gospel that's often preached is there's a bunch of good people that are just begging, oh, please, 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 God, oh, please, come, let me in, let me in. That's that fundamentally not the picture in the Bible. You are running from God. You are in rebellion, and even if you're standing there, you're going to church every week, you are so loathed, laden, whatever the word is, you are filled with self-righteousness that you'll sit there and you'll try to be like, see God, look at me, 
And you may not be running like the licentious person does after their sin, but you are standing in your own self-righteousness as a massive impediment between you and the work of Jesus Christ. And all of this is happening, yet God has come to us, we won't come to him. And then you think about how the Bible talks about sin, how it describes sin as as, as us being guilty on our own, left to ourselves. Unclean is another word that's used. Alienated from God, separated, rebellious. We already covered that in part. These are words used about sin and sinners, that we're condemned in our sin, that we are dead in our sin, Ephesians 2. So it's not only that God's come to us, but we won't come to him, but according to what the Bible talks about, it's not only that we won't come to him, it's that we can't come to him because dead people don't do anything. They just lay dead. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. People feel bad about stuff. I've seen people feel a remorse about stuff that they've done that was wrong. And I would say, okay. And that could be a really encouraging sign, but it depends how conviction shows up in a human heart. There's a way that a person can sense a bit of sorrow, what Paul would call worldly sorrow, without it actually being conviction of sin. We gotta be really careful that we don't label certain things conviction of sin that aren't conviction of sin. So you go, well, I want to know. Then how do I know if I'm preaching the gospel to someone? How do I know right now that the gospel is getting a hold of my heart? Here's some ways that you start to see conviction of sin truly taking place in one's life. Conviction of sin is clear when they understand that their sin is against God. When they're starting to make that connection like that David does in that amazing psalm, Confessing a sin to Bathsheba, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. The difference between worldly sorrow and true conviction of sin, the one who's truly convicted of sin, knows that they've sinned against God. The one who's truly convicted of sin no longer uh, measures their sinfulness on their own human scale, but rather on God's. That's one of the pieces When you see conviction of sin taking place in someone's life, it often comes with a realization of specific sins that have been committed. Like they could point to them, right? So you're not just talking about sin generally speaking. Like if you can convince someone they're a sinner, you know, you've made a mistake, right? Quick, 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 let's pray the prayer. You said yes. Dear God, repeat after me, dear God, right? No. What did Zacchaeus do when he was confronted by Jesus? He knew he was an extorter. And what did he do? He knew what he needed to do. He needed to pay the guy back. So when you're convicted of sin, you understand that your sin's against God, but you also understand you have specific sin in your life that you can name. You're not going to name all the sins, because here's the reality. At the beginning, you're not going to see yourself as nearly a sinner as you will as you move on in your Christian life. You'll see yourself as a far greater sinner as you go. But even at the beginning, you're not going to be able to pick out every single one of your sins, but simply you better know some sin that you've sinned against God. You know, like, I've been angry with my brother, so I'm an adulterer, or I'm a, I, I've murdered my brother in my heart. Or I've lusted after a woman in my heart, so I'm an adulterer at heart, right? Categories. You have clear, specific things. And it's not just the specific sins, but let me just say this. Someone who's convicted of their sin understands the sinfulness of themselves, understands the pervasive and radical depravity that is in them. 
In, in other words, when someone is convicted of sin, they're not merely assessing the circumstance as, oh, I just need to fix a couple things and then God and I will be good. No, 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 no. They come to the conclusion of John and John, of Jesus in John chapter 3 that I need to be born again. I need a new start. I need a new life. I need a clean slate. I need a radical overhaul. This is essential. Not just sins, but sinfulness. Not just sins and sinfulness, but sin against God. That's when you start to see, is this person truly convicted? Are you truly convicted of your sin? Because I would say two of the most popular counterfeit gospels of today fit into the man category. Should we look at them? The moralistic gospel and the therapeutic gospel, they are rampant. The moralistic gospel, it has an incomplete view of sin. The therapeutic gospel redefines the fall. The moralistic gospel gets at this. Good news, I'm not as bad as I thought. Or maybe the way you would hear it, and this is probably the most predominant thing you will hear when you share the gospel with someone, I'm a pretty good person. This, loved ones, is the expression of pride in the human heart. It is the default setting of the human heart. The moralistic gospel is some version of just clean yourself up and you're all good. Which is funny because what that does that we don't even notice when we're talking to someone about this is when you say all you have to do is clean yourself up and you're all good, it misses the fact that sin's not just the act, sin's an expression of what's in the heart. The moralistic gospel only says sin's only a problem because I've committed sin. Sin's not having anything to do with my heart whatsoever. So as long as I'm trying to do some good things and get myself back on the right track, everything's okay. Here's a little hint for us, just in case you wanted one. When Jesus starts to become the hero of your salvation story and testimony, you know you're on the right track towards the real gospel. And it's amazing, listening. I mean, in baptism, like, I was talking to Stu, and he's like, hey, could you say something about this? Like, young, old, seasoned Christians, non-seasoned Christians, it's amazing how almost across the board, it's very, very difficult for people to talk about how they've been changed by the gospel. They struggle to do it. They make it a testimony about their whole life story instead of here's who God is, here's who I was, here's what Christ has done, and here's how I've changed by God's grace. Right? Here's how he's changed me. There, there's, a, there's a, if we're not careful, a man-centeredness in our approach to the gospel where we sort of become the centerpiece and it's really hard to put Jesus into the centerpiece. And yet that's what we need to do. And the moralistic gospel keeps us from putting Jesus in the centerpiece because it's not about Jesus ultimately. Like Jesus may like, you know, hey, you've had a really rough run at life, you know? So Jesus will clean that up. But from now on, you got to get after it, right? This is what freaked out Paul in Galatians 3. I can't believe we started this by walking with the Spirit and now we're going to do this by works of the flesh. He used the word, I'm bewitched. You all have gone into like some weird spell has come over you to, to, to return to the works of the flesh that you know never justified you with God. 
The moralistic gospel is what many, many people, it's what many Christians believe. That's why Christians raise their hand to accept Christ a thousand times. Because they had a bad week, and instead of trusting in the person and work of Jesus, they're like, if I throw my hand up again and say I want to start over, it'll be okay again. And again, and again, and again. It's a moralistic gospel. The second gospel error, gospel counterfeit, is the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel, whereas the moralistic gospel has an incomplete view of sin, the therapeutic gospel, as I said, redefines the fall. So what happens? This is so, 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 so common. Clear? Like, this is what we should be like. Look for it. This is all over the place, this gospel, that goes after the symptoms instead of the disease. So, what are you feeling these days? Little down? God can help. You anxious about some things? No problem. God can fill that cup. You got a troubled marriage? God's in the business of helping that stuff. It's not to say that God can't help with anxiety. Of course he can. It's not to say that God doesn't help with a troubled marriage. I don't know how you get out of a troubled marriage without God. It's not to say that God doesn't help you with your feelings to some extent, but if we're not careful, the therapeutic gospel becomes Jamba Juice God, right? He'll give you a free boost, (laughs) right? Let's just tack it on there. Well, I'll preach a message that you could preach in almost any context that is moral, and so Christians are like, oh, it was relatively moral, but not even remotely Christian, in any distinct way, and then be like, hey, don't worry. We're giving boosts away for free. I think you got to pay these days at Jamba Juice, don't you? There was a day at Jamba Juice you got to, do you remember this? Get one for free, right? I always went for protein too, thinking that that was like, and it didn't work, obviously, right? (laughs) Dang it. God's going to fix this. God's going to solve this. God's going to help you with this. If it's not about a a felt need that God's going to address, then what sin is, is sin is a deficiency in your self-esteem. God's going to help you with your self-worth. This is how the gospel becomes the therapeutic gospel. God's going to help you with your self-worth. Sin is a self-esteem deficiency. And so what you'll hear oftentimes in this makeup is people already feel guilty is what they'll say. Don't beat them down with more bad news. People already feel guilty. Church, listen to me. The problem isn't that people feel guilty. The problem is they are guilty. The problem isn't that you feel guilty. The problem is you are guilty. The problem is not a low view of self. The problem is a low view of God. And think about this. This works, by the way. This legitimately is one of the most effective other gospels that people are getting saved to. This one's really effective. And when we make it that Jesus is your boost to life, then when someone actually comes and preaches the truth and says, actually, you've offended a holy God, They're like, me? Like, the notion of that is so crazy because you're like, I I just struggle with self-esteem. 
There's no way my life, I mean, that, that's a God I couldn't worship because, because look at me in my place. How could he possibly have something against me? But here's the thing, even in that, and there's so many other areas we could talk about, but even in that, when we pursue God in this way, we fail to see pursuit of God as means to our own self-fulfillment. So it becomes about God as a means to our end instead of God as the end. And this is what the therapeutic gospel does. They'll talk about Jesus, and they'll talk about him dying on the cross, and they'll say, the death of Jesus is about your worth. It shows how valuable you are. Now, there is some sense, that's the thing about these, is like, every time I kind of want to nuance it and go, well, yeah, it does say something about how much God loves you, for sure. It does say something about the significance of God wanting to reconcile people specifically to himself. But let me be very, very clear. The cross of Jesus Christ is not ultimately about magnifying your worth. It's magnifying his. It's magnifying his glory and his mercy to sinners. That's what he wants to do. And the therapeutic gospel misses that piece that's so essential to the gospel. God, tell him he's glorious. Tell him he's holy. Tell him he's loving. Man, tell them they're image bearers, but they've sinned, and here's what conviction of sin looks like. And then Christ, tell them about Jesus. Number three is Christ. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them that Jesus is the good news of the gospel. He is the good news. Tell them it's his person and his work. Don't separate them. Don't pin them against each other. The Jesus Christ that saves is, a G, is the Jesus Christ revealed in the word of God. And the cross that saves is significant because of the Jesus who died on it. Both of those things need to be kept in focus when we share the gospel. We need to be saved from our sin. That's at the heart of the gospel. But here's what's really even more at the heart of the gospel. Yes, sin is the issue. But you need to be saved by God from God. You need to be saved from God. You don't need to be saved from Satan. You need to be saved from God. And the only one who can save you from God is God. Thus, Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior. So what do you tell them about? What do you tell them? What do you tell them? What do you need to know about Jesus? Here, here's what you need to know. You want to know about the Jesus who saves. You want to know about the Jesus who's revealed in the New Testament. Then you need to know this Jesus. The Jesus who saves is the Jesus who lived for you. He's the Jesus who died for you and is the Jesus who rose for you. That's what you need to know. You need to know that Jesus lived for you, that the second person of our triune God took on human flesh and became a man. You need to know that. To save sinners according to the Father's eternal plan. You need to know that. And his life matters. He was passively obedient, but he was also actively obedient. He was passively obedient in the submitting of himself to be on the receiving end of the full weight of God's wrath deserving sin. That's his passive obedience. Submitting himself to the Father's plan. But he was also actively obedient in his life, perfectly fulfilling the law of God on our behalf so that 
we not only have our sins forgiven, but because of Jesus Christ's life and our faith in his person and his work, his perfect account of righteousness could be credited to us. It's called imputation. It's really double imputation, which is the word for credit or reckon. You need a holiness, you need a righteousness to be in God's presence. Christ purchased that righteousness in perfectly fulfilling the law of God and perfectly submitting himself to the plan of God to suffer and die in our place for our sin. We need his life so that his perfect righteous account by faith could be credited to us such that when we were to stand before God, we could have perfect confidence before him because we don't stand on our own works and we don't stand on our own merits. God, by faith in Jesus, treats us as Jesus deserves to be treated because he treated Jesus as we deserve to be treated. We need his life because by faith we need his righteousness to be imputed to us, but we also need his death. We need Christ's death on our behalf. We need to know him as the savior because he became a man to die for man in their place. We need to know about his forgiveness of sin he provides forgiveness of sin through his death and reconciles us back to a holy God. He pays the penalty for our sin in his death and he severs the power of sin over us in his death. We'll talk more about that next week. How, what happened? Christ satisfied the demands of God's holy justice to God's satisfaction that's what happened. And that enables God to extend the benefits of redemption to all who are in Christ. Full acceptance because of his life, full forgiveness because of his death. But then we need him to have risen for us. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And when we're talking about Jesus rose for us, we're including in that his resurrection, we're including in that his ascension, and we're including in that his heavenly session. We, we need his resurrection. Why? Because it was the vindication of Christ's sacrifice that it was sufficient and accepted by the Father. We need his resurrection. It shows that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice, the true God-man who died in our place. We need his resurrection because it's the proof that death has been defeated. Because until Jesus Christ, death reigned. We need his resurrection because he inaugurated the new creation in a garden, no less. Creation established in Eden. God breathing life into the man and giving him his vocation. And guess where that tomb was that Jesus Christ was placed in? Inside of a garden. And you remember when God was walking in the cool of the night in Genesis? He comes out as the gardener, and they're like, I'm going to cry. It's so good. I can't cry today because I've got like this allergy cold, and you're probably hearing it. It's probably so annoying. I'm so sorry. But if I get emotional, then it's like it's going to come out more. And I'm not going to be that guy that blows his nose. You know what I'm saying? I'm sorry. So I'm a sniffer for now until this thing like blows over. But I just can't be that right here in front of everyone. I just can't. I can't do it. Sorry. Real life. Real time. 
Jesus Christ rises from the dead, establishes, inaugurates the new creation, Christ the first fruits from the dead, bringing many other sons to glory, resurrected to new life in Jesus Christ. Where did it take place? In a garden, the same place creation took place. Jesus Christ is enthroned as king in his ascension. He lives to save to the uttermost all who come to Jesus, the living Savior, by virtue of his death, which leads us to the gospel counterfeit that most often operates here. Now listen, I'm not getting to every uh, counterfeit of the gospel. I'm just not. I don't have the time. I don't have the time. But the one that's maybe the most common here is, well, I'll just call it the new age gospel, which is a Jesus of your own making. You need the Jesus who lived for you, died for you, and rose for you as the God-man. You need that Jesus. You don't need the Christ of cosmic consciousness. You don't need the Christ that's not God, or the Christ that's not Lord, or the Christ that's not Savior. You don't need the Christ who is a way and not the way. You need the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. You need, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved than Jesus. You need that Jesus. You need the eternal second person of the Trinity take on human flesh, Jesus, to save you from your sins. And you need the Jesus who actually took on real human nature, and you need the Jesus who's ascended to the right hand bodily. When you get to this point in the gospel, it's interesting to watch the accounts in the book of Acts because there's, um, there's a response in the book of Acts that based on what I've preached, it commands a response. It's not that, hey, if you're thinking about it, maybe you'll respond. No, 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 no. What I have just said demands a response. That God commands you to respond because of what's been shared about him and the work he's accomplished through the Son by the Spirit. So we're going to get to the response. This is where you need to take someone. This is what you need to respond with. If you see who you are before a holy God, if you see your sinfulness for what it is, you need to respond. Two words, we're going to talk about them. Repentance and faith. You know, the, the word says response on the screen, and it sounds like I just gave you two responses. I gave you repentance and faith. So why don't you, well, why don't you write responses up there then? Dummy. I'm out of here. My first week. Doesn't even have basic. When, you, when there's two, it's responses. Okay, 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 okay. Let's go. Sometimes in Acts, for example, just to give examples, again, Acts is largely descriptive, not prescriptive for us, but let's just look at it and see that in Acts 2, you have sometimes, for example, where he'll just talk about repentance. Sometimes it's repent. In other times, like in Acts 16, it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, no mention of repentance. So how are we to put this together? What we find oftentimes is that where the response of repentance was required, those converted are described as believing afterwards. But let me get even more specific here. The faith that is unto salvation is a repentant faith. And the faith that is unto repentance is a faithful or believing repentance. You don't have one without the other. 
They're the same action from different perspectives. Repentance is the person viewing themselves in light of their sin. And belief is viewing themselves in light of who Jesus is. That's why theologians have called these conjoined twins or called twin graces because both of the response elements, two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith, are gifts in the scriptures given to you by God. That's why they're called twin graces because grace is a gift. You've got repentance and faith. How do I know about repentance? Let me give you some aspects of repentance. It's vertical, it's mental, and it's directional. Here's what true repentance looks like. It's true repentance is not just I feel sorry for something, not mere remorse. It's vertical sorrow over who you've sinned against. It's mental. You see your sin for what it is, and you agree with God about your sin, so it's mental. That's actually what the word repentance means, change of mind. You agree with God about your sin, and it's directional. You turn from it. Okay? Uh, By the way, uh, if I said come to Jesus, because you're a sinner, you have to turn to come to Jesus. I got two nods. Is that okay? So that's why when you say come to Jesus, you're like, you didn't say repent. How else do you come to Jesus, sinner, without repenting? You had to turn around. You ain't going towards Jesus. No one's seeking after God. So when I say come and you turn and come, you're turning. You're going after Jesus because he's glorious and he's worth it. It's interesting, when we talk about directional too, we're also refusing to set a limit on the claims Jesus makes on our lives. One of the things that's common in modern evangelism is the idea of padding our stats about salvation. How many hands can get raised? How many conversions can we do? How many, how many, how many, how many? And it's interesting, I don't get the sense that Jesus is into padding his stats. I didn't get the sense that he wanted a bunch of professing fans who didn't possess a faith, and so he told them again and again and again, count the cost, because the gospel is free to you, but it will cost you everything. You will lay down your life. You will pick up your cross. You will deny yourself, and you will follow Jesus, and you will do it. When you get it, you will do it gladly. That's what repentance looks like, vertical, mental, and directional. Here's faith. Faith is that means by which we receive the benefits of Christ's work. It is the means. It's not not belief for belief's sake. We're into belief these days. You know what? Just got to have faith. That you have faith, that'll get you through everything. No, 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 no. It's not that you have faith that you're confident in. It's not even the strength of your faith. So often it's seen as like, you have to have a really strong faith in Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is a really strong object to hit your faith to. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You're going to ebb and flow in your faith. Sometimes your faith is going to be rock solid, and other times your faith is going to waver, but Jesus never wavers. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You don't worry about your ups and downs because your salvation does not depend on you. It's on Jesus. So tell us that. 
When you testify in the waters of baptism that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, don't make your story about you. Tell us about Jesus. Tell us about how great and how glorious he is. Tell us not how strong you hold on to him. Tell me that he holds on to you. Tell me that. I want that Jesus. That's the Jesus that saves. This is the power. Faith is receiving God's good graces because you stake your faith. What is it? It's a knowledge of the gospel. It's assenting to that knowledge. You believe it's true. But then it's this. It's putting all your hope, all your trust, renouncing self, renouncing all your efforts, and putting all your confidence in the personal work of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross. That blood shed was atoning blood for you. And you trust in him. None of these counterfeits work. Not easy believism gospel. And again, I know, I know that sometimes I harp on the raising hand thing. It's just so predominant in our broader culture. But, but what I want to say about it is just because you raised your hand, or I'll add, pray to prayer, does not make you saved. So many times, I'll see the response of like, hey, so uh, with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed, um, and there was no gospel shared whatsoever, people still raising their hands. And I would just say, saved to what? Saved to what? Okay, that, that's an issue. We need to proclaim the gospel. Do we need to call them, invite them? Yes and amen. But let's just be careful that when we call someone to raise a hand, we understand that nowhere in the scripture, by the way, does it say you're supposed to raise a hand. How about another one? How about accepting Christ into our hearts? Now, this one is tough because I, I know it's an easy way to talk about it. And so I don't want to be like, now, pastors, I, ex I mean, I didn't accept him in my heart. I, I, but he here's the thing. We've got to get the language right. Us accept Christ? Faith is trusting that in Christ, God's accepted you. Accepting Christ sounds like God's begging, going, please, 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 please again. And what your faith is, is not, not worrying about you accepting Christ. We can use the language. I, I think the word received is maybe better because I don't want to get ticky-tacky on this. I don't, I don't need an email about this. I, I, just John 1's helpful on this, you know, um, to all those who did receive him, right? There is a sense of accepting Christ, but I just want you to know that the accepting is really on God's behalf of you, not on your behalf of God. And then two others that get in there uh, is, wow, I'm, I'm going over. I'm going to get murdered by my staff. Uh, activist gospel and, and the prosperity gospel. Don't worry, I'm, I'm basically done. How do, you, how do you preach the gospel fully without just getting to some of the stuff, you know? It's like taking kids to Disneyland every week, and I'm like, nope, I'm not shoving that kid out. That kid's got to come with me too. That one's got to come. That's how I describe preaching, by the way. A big van full of kids that need to get into the bus and we need to take them to church or Disneyland anyway. Activist gospel. If you didn't get any of that, it's all good. Activist gospel. This is confusing the effects of the gospel with the response to the gospel. Activist gospel is your cause-oriented instead of Christ-oriented. You're going to do some stuff. How do you respond to Jesus? I'm going to do things for Jesus. Now, that is the effect of the gospel, that we would 
walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10 for sure, but if our primary response is good deeds instead of faith alone in Christ alone, we have a problem. And finally, prosperity gospel is life should be good now that God's in it. No sorrow, no suffering, no difficulties. Faith is like a stick. God is like a pinata. And if you whack them, good stuff comes out. (laughs) And that's the prosperity gospel. And that's the expectation. And so what happens, right? If you didn't have enough faith because you didn't whack the pinata hard enough, nothing came out. That's why it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the object of your faith who is Jesus. I will say this one last time. There are people in here who are not Christians that I'm praying you would come to a saving faith in Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive forgiveness of sins and reconciled relationship with God. And I would say that there are some in here, I pray that those who may think they're Christians that are not would hear the gospel and would awaken you to the glories of the gospel that you might receive Jesus Christ. And for those who are saved, would we open our mouths to declare the glories of the gospel because the gospel is a message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel today. Thank you for the opportunity to get to proclaim it. Thank you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Father, I pray that you would use the gospel and by your spirit you would cause many people to come to know you, cause them to beat their breasts like the man in Luke 18 and just say, call out to you, have mercy on me, a sinner. We don't have to get overly complex with our words. We just need to come to you and say, I renounce all self-effort and I trust solely in Jesus. God, would you save me? Would you reconcile me to yourself through Jesus? I trust in him alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.